Hi folks, this is Rue. And Dave. And welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Today we're going to continue with Anne of Green Gables by Ella Montgomery, Chapter 25. Matthew insists on puffed sleeves. He insists. Puffed sleeves. Cue the music. Yeah. You mentioned there was something you wanted to raise. Oh, uh, just something beautiful in a book I'm reading. Um, I'm currently reading volume one of A Thousand One Nights, the the Arabian Nights, the classic um, collection of stories. Mm. And I've been enjoying it immensely, although I think I will be taking breaks between each volume. The One Thousand One Nights are broken up into three Penguin <laughs> releases. Oof, oof. And they are, each book is quite large. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I love, um, like, because most of these stories started as oral storytelling mm. and were later written down, uh, you know, it, it has the hallmarks of a lot of oral stero- storytelling in that things get repeated and certain sayings are kind of shorthand for, um, for the audience to clue in what's going on. But... One thing I really love is because, because are you familiar with the general, like the, the core story of yeah. the Arabian Gen- Nights? General premise of in order to survive, a thousand and one tales is told. Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, the sultan um, of this kingdom is sleep, has been sleeping with potential brides. And after he sleeps with them, he is unsatisfied with them. So he kills them. Uh, he... Then the vizier has two daughters, and he's been trying to protect them for a long time. But finally, the king is like, bring me your daughter. So in order to save her sister, this his one daughter, who is like loves stories, visits her after the king has slept with her and said, well, can I tell my sister a story to fall asleep? You are welcome to stay here, king. And the king's like, go. So she she cuts up the stories in such a way that when the sun rises, she's like, it's always at like a cliffhanger point. So mm. the next night she continues the story and the king is getting more and more interested every night. But the way the stories work is kind of like Russian nesting dolls where she'll tell a story and a person in the story will get in trouble. It's like, well, what's happened to me is not as crazy as what happened to me last night. So let me tell you this story. And then in that story, even sometimes there are people who, well, let me tell you what happened to me. And it keeps going on and on. But one thing I love is this happened a few times where a sultan, you know, who's like judging over whether people are going to live or die and they're telling stories to kind of explain why they're in the situation with them. Mm. The, the sultan will be so impressed that he's like, that story was so wonderful. I want it read. I want it written down and placed in the vault. And so we're talking the sultan, the sultan from the Thousand and One Night story. Not no, the no, the sultans in these stories because oh, wow. so many of the stories have to do with kings and sultans yeah. and um, rich, rich merchants and mm. um, a, a lot of people with deformities as well. A uh, mm. lot of mutilation in these stories. Uh, th- there's a lot of problematic elements in this, uh, and I, I think for that reason, even very quickly when I was reading, I'm like, yeah, we're probably never going to cover this collection of stories on the podcast but but no the idea that when the sultan hears a story 
he wants it written down and placed in the treasure vault with like gems and everything else precious. Mm. The idea that stories themselves have 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 an intrinsic uh, value to and them, and that they're precious, and that we should be preserving them. Yeah, no, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. It, it, it's it's happened so many times, but it was just during the story I was reading last night because a lot of the time when I go to read to wind down for sleep, I've stayed up too late, so I'm already very tired. But at least with this book, I can at least just read one night. <laughs> you Makes know? sense. And then you're like, oh, okay, uh, well, and the cliffhanger will be resolved tomorrow night. But but that's the thing. Yeah, last night it was finally a click that, yeah, because it, it was one of those particularly long nestled stories that finally came to an end. And the, and the sultan in the story was, yeah, this needs to be written down and put in the vault. Or another thing they say is, this story is so good it needs to be engraved on gold. <laughs> oh. Or another saying they go, the this story is like they say this for moral stories. They go, this story is so important that people need it sewn on the inside of their eyelids as a warning. <laughs> wow, that's that's graphic. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I get what they mean, but that's graphic. Yeah. The, um, yes. Yeah. So, um, actually, I, I as as long as you're okay with you know like um, the way as humans treated each other, you know, a couple thousand years ago. If you're okay with that, um, I recommend because the stories are fantastic and really entertaining. Mm. It's just well, yeah, they're. I'm not. I'm not okay with them how they treated each other, but I. I, I mean, I mean, if aware it's, and yeah. if it's not going to distress you yeah, too, yeah. too greatly. So, so there's. So there you have it, folks. The recommendations <laughs> that if you can handle the graphic um, and gore. Uh, well, not not just that. The, the treatment of women, there's a lot of how they treat slaves. Mm, um, mm. J- just basically how cheap human life seemed to be in that era. The devaluing of those who are not of the same financial... Actually, read read a really good um, discussion on that. It's probably not... Super, well, it, it's vaguely relevant. It connects us to um, Anne of Green Gables a little bit because... They were saying that there's this um, concept of material superiority in terms of your, your, your spiritual purity. So in other words, the wealthier you were, the more you, you could buy or book or like reserve certain pews in the church. Right. And then the, so the church became socioeconomically and class devi- divisive. And it's not a new concept. It's not restricted to churches. It's something we see in case systems. We see it all over the place. Um, where wealth is equated to access to spiritual purity by virtue of, say, because they can do this or that purification ceremony and whatever. Wasn't that the whole reason for Martin Luther and the Reformation? He didn't like that the Vatican was basically, uh, well, selling absolution? Yeah, it's a bit. It's a bit. Um, Absolution was that the word? Sorry, I'm. <laughs> yes, no. It I've was. Lost it, my that, word. that was one part of it. Like there's a. It's simplified, but that was part of it. The idea that wealth was being used to secure your plot in heaven, mm. so to speak, um, and, and, and you it, could absolve yourself of any wrongdoings, which is an interesting reflection because it does happen now, and no matter what society you live, where wealth can be a factor as to whether you ha- face consequences for activities. Or oh not. yeah. But that being said, if you turn, it means also that people, there are certain businesses that, for example, there's a little bit of a, oh, well, it's okay if if people who have money want to waste it on things that are not harmful, but uh, I'm talking a lot of uh, 
don't want to be direct about it. There are some quote unquote alternative healthcare practices that don't have any foundation in anything other than the fact that they are there to make you feel as though you're you're purer, so uh-huh. to speak. You're your holistic medicine no like holistic medicine in itself is not the issue the issue is when people say um well if you can afford it sure go do whatever makes you happy okay and they use that in the framework not in terms of like activities and entertainment or whatever we're talking in terms of uh i did this spiritual cleanse or i did this um like the commodification of of um you being a more spiritual or a purer person just by virtue of the fact that you have money and you have access to certain rituals that you then declare are gotcha. are how you have more spirituality. Wealth is not, you know, like wealth is not an equivalent. And the, coming back to um, Anne of Green Gables, the fa- I was reading the article and when they said, oh, the pews are, used to be and still are in some ways, booked or there's a family pew if you have the money you pay for it and it's a socioeconomic reflection of the of the community maybe you realize wait the like in green gables the the um cuthbert's actually have a pew mm. and whether whether this is due to because everyone does because everyone in that community does it could just be, a, yeah it could just be like every family has a pew or yeah it can be a thing or it can indicate how well your family is established in that community in terms of the amount of time they have been in that community if they were part of the founding members of that community and when we were talking about how at least merla and matthew uh, seem to be a bit of uh not outsiders but they're on the edge of the community well they're involved but they're not involved so they will do their best by their neighbors they'll do what they can but they're not socially heavily engaged and that made me kind of reflect because I, I think it came up when they were at the beginning of the book where they were talking about, you know, there are certain established families. So you had the Lynns, you had the Cuthberts, uh, the Pies are apparently a fairly older family, same with the Sloans, things like that. So these are established families, quote unquote, mm. in the community because they have been there for, for the longest. So it's either wealth or the amount of time you've been in that community and you've been part of, in terms of your family name. Well, and I, I think that's probably linked as well because I always remember hearing, um, you know, like the the amount of like tech millionaires these days, the wealth these people have made, or even the billionaires, it, it's almost nothing compared to like some of the oldest families in Italy. Yeah, yeah. But even even if you remove the wealth part, it's a distinct like it's a distinct enforcing of classist approaches which makes now this is where we come back which makes the adoption of Anne and how she is integrated into their family as someone to love and also the community that much more remarkable right and it's i wonder how much i, mean, I can't tell we don't know for sure what the um authors what Ellen Montgomery was intending but even just that reflection of questioning judging people by their families and questioning like Anne's family you know the big focus of adopting a child was you don't know who their family is mm. and straight up it's it's a criticism of that this is such a heavy social criticism but it's done in such a way that it's more showing look at the delight this child brings yes there's challenges yes there's tests but there's no ill intent mm. 
and look at the humanity that you see in these people and, and how the goodness. Even when uh, last, bringing it to last time when we covered three chapters, yeah. how it was when Anne broke her ankle and they were bringing her back to the Cuthbert farm where Marilla, Marilla finally realized how much Anne meant to her. Yeah. And that that's kind of where it all came up because it's going, it's interesting. There's probably so many layers to these. Like, it's very easy to dismiss. We said this before children's books as being like, it's a children's book, it's for children. Mm -hmm. It's moral, like, don't run around. It's like, no, it's not actually the story. That's not the moral of this story. The moral of the story is yes, you are flawed. Yes, you are not perfect. But who you are in terms of where you, where you were born and where you are from is not. Um, should not be of social importance as much as it is your as your character, your intent, and your actions are. And I think it also shows how important it is to give people the opportunity to flourish. Yes, and that we are we contribute to how other people can flourish. And and it doesn't mean we have to accept things that are directly harmful to us. And in fact, anything that is someone being directly harmful with disregard to your well being, everyone is well in their rights to avoid that. Well, look, look at uh, it came up last um, chapter, actually, where Matthew thanked the Lord that he didn't have to raise and he left that to Marilla. So he was free to spoil her. Yeah. So, you know, Anne has a firm hand in Marilla trying to to guide her on, on how to navigate the social norms. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas whereas uh, but Marilla in her own way still allows Anne to flourish. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's she is also being confronted by her own concepts of what is and isn't the social norm, because she re when and doesn't fit in with the social norm mm -hmm. or doesn't see, uh, and or it's it's going contrary to her sense of integrity and justice. Marilla is forced to confront that within herself. Yes, and this is actually the more you dissect it and yes people much more versed in this and skilled and analytical and i'm Stop sure it. okay look people exist that know this a lot better than we do simple as that but we can still just here just pondering between the two of us we can see how there's so many facets in terms of it's such a brilliant commentary mm -hmm. there's so such depth there's such richness to this it's great there anyway, but such joy such joy yeah it's great okay anyway, so we continue on with chapter 25. Yes, Matthew insists on puffed sleeves. I think we can kind of guess what's going to happen. Yes? You know, at this point, I'm not going to try and infer what's going to happen. Well, Matthew insists on puffed sleeves. That's what, what, what we know is definitely going to happen. He's going to insist on them. But will he? Well, he insists on them. But <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen. Listen, Matthew was having a bad 10 minutes of it. He had come into the kitchen in the twilight of a cold, grey December evening and had sat down in the woodbox corner to take off his heavy boots, unconscious of the fact that Anne and a bevy of her schoolmates were having a practice of the Fairy Queen in the sitting room. Presently they came, trooping through the hall and out into the kitchen, laughing and chattering gaily. They did not see Matthew, who shrank bashfully back into the <laughs> shadows beyond the wood box with a boot in one hand and a bootjack in the other, and he watched them shyly for the aforementioned ten minutes as they put on caps and jackets and talked about the dialogue and the concert. Anne stood among them, bright-eyed and animated as they. But Matthew suddenly became conscious that there was something about her different from her mates, and what worried Matthew was that the difference impressed him as being something that should not exist. 
Hmm. Anne had a brighter face and bigger, starrier eyes and more delicate features than the others. Even shy, unobservant Matthew had learned to take note of these things. But the difference that disturbed him did not consist in any of these respects. Then in what did it consist? Matthew was haunted by this question long after the girls had gone, arm in arm down the long, hard-frozen lane, and Anne had betaken herself to her books. He could not refer it to Marilla, who he felt would be quite sure to sniff scornfully and remark that the only difference she saw between Anne and the other girls was that they sometimes helped... (laughs) 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 Sorry. Was the only difference that she saw between Anne and the other girls was that they sometimes kept their tongues quiet, while Anne never did. (laughs) This, Matthew felt, would be no great help. He had recourse to his pipe that evening to help him study it out much to Marilla's disgust. After two hours of smoking and hard reflection, Matthew arrived at a solution of his problem. Anne was not dressed like the other girls. The more Matthew thought about the matter, the more he was convinced that Anne never had been dressed like the other girls, never since she had come to Green Gables. Marilla kept her clothed in plain dark dresses, all made after the same unvarying pattern, If Matthew knew there was such a thing as fashion in dress, it was as much as he did. But he was quite sure that Anne's sleeves did not look at all like the... (laughs) I'm having a moment. This is a guy. (laughs) We get get a rare glimpse into Matthew's thought process. Matthew's thinking. Matthew's confused. Something's different. But she's beautiful and vivacious and that's not it. Clothing. What about the clothing? Let's figure this out. It's two hours on a pipe. <laughs> I, 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 there are things about Matthew that are concerning. Never mind. Well, as he said, they said, he's a little unobservant. <laughs> if Matthew knew there was such a thing as fashion in dress, it was as much as he did. But he was quite sure that Anne's sleeves did not look at all like the sleeves the other girls wore. He recalled the cluster of little girls he had seen around her that evening all gay in waists of red and blue and pink and white, and he wondered why Marilla always kept her so plainly and soberly gowned. Of course, it must be all right. Marilla knew best, and Marilla was bringing her up. Probably some wise, inscrutable motive was to be served thereby. But surely it would do no harm to let the child have one pretty dress, something like Diana Barry always wore. Matthew decided that he would give her one. That surely could not be objected to as an unwarranted putting in of his oar. (laughs) Christmas was only a fortnight off. A nice new dress would be the very thing for a present. Matthew, with a sigh of satisfaction, put away his pipe and went to bed, while Marilla opened all the doors and aired the house. The very next evening, Matthew betook himself to Carmody to buy the dress. Matthew is not consulting Marilla on this. Matthew is going off and buying a dress himself. Because... Even though he understands that Marilla has a purpose with her attiring of Anne, and that is her right, he's like, well, I can give her a a Christmas gift. That's appropriate. But Matthew, who has zero fashion sense, is going out to get this done. So this is going to be interesting, considering he fears interaction with women and little girls particularly. Whom does one get addressed from? Whom does one think one would be addressing when getting a dress for a little girl? Addressing for a dress? Addressing for a dress. Whom would one be addressing? One would be addressing a woman, wouldn't one? Wouldn't one? (laughs) 
I'm just like going, I don't ask me where that Boom. came from. Boom. <laughs> but yes, the fact that Matthew's like decided I'm going to get this dress, but doesn't think the next step would involve interaction with a woman, despite the well, fact that he has fears, is going to be hilarious. I also, think. my thinking would be, okay, I think Anne needs a nice dress. Why not approach Merlin and go, Anne's Christmas present should be like a nice dress. Why don't you go get one for her? Or he could go to Mrs. Lind, although I'd know that he'd probably no, not do that. No, 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 no. Look, even myself, if I lived in that community, I probably wouldn't want to go see Mrs. Lind. Not for this. Although she'd probably agree. But we'll see. Let's have a look. <clears throat> the very next evening, Matthew betook himself to Carmody to buy the dress, determined to get the worst over and have it done with. So yes, no, he is thinking, oh no, this is going to involve human interaction with a woman. Oh God. And he, he, he went to town to buy it. Yes, to the actual town. Not Avonlea, but the proper town. Mm. Oof. It would be, he felt assured, no trifling ordeal. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> the optimism of yes. Matthew Cuthbert. <laughs> oh, wow. Such a negative. There were some things Matthew could buy and prove himself no mean bargainer, but he knew he would be at the mercy of shopkeepers when it came to buying a girl's dress. There we go. After much cogitation... Matthew resolved to go to Samuel Lawson's store instead of William Blair's. To be sure, the Cuthberts always had gone to William Blair's. It was almost as much a matter of conscience with them as to attend the Presbyterian Church and vote Conservative. But William Blair's two daughters frequently waited on customers there, and Matthew held them in absolute dread. <laughs> he could contrive to deal with them when he knew exactly what he wanted and could point it out, but in such a matter as this... Requiring explanation and consultation, Matthew felt that he must be sure of a man behind the counter. So he would go to Lawson's, where Samuel or his son would wait on him. Okay, so he has taken that idea into consideration. He has thought about this. He's really thinking thoroughly. <laughs> Must have been the two, three hours on the pipe. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Alas, Matthew did not know that Samuel, in the recent expansion of his business, had set up a lady clerk also. She was a niece of his wife's, and a very dashing young person indeed, with a huge, drooping pompadour, big, rolling brown eyes, and a most extensive and bewildering smile. She was dressed with exceeding smartness, and wore several bangle bracelets that glittered and rattled and tinkled with every movement of her hands. Matthew was covered with confusion at finding her there at all, and those bangles completely wrecked his wits at one fell swoop. Yeah, yeah. I think he... I, look, let us not engage in remote diagnosis, but he is sensory-wise sens completely overwhelmed. I get this. Well, also, I, I can um, sympathize with him there when, like, a lady's wearing, like, many bracelets, and as they're moving, they're jangling about, and like, ah! Like, this is a lot of input. <laughs> There's a lot of input, and he's already shocked, and not. it's not what he expected, and now he's stressed. And he's in a situation where he's making decisions that, he, he's never done before. Mm. All the things in one go. What can I do for you this evening, Mr. Cuthbert? Miss Lucilla Harris inquired briskly and ingratiatingly, tapping at the counter with both hands. Have you any, 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 well now, say, any garden ricks? Stammered Matthew. Miss Harris looked somewhat surprised, as well she might, to hear a man inquiring for garden rakes in the middle of December. I believe we have one or two left over, she said, but they're upstairs in the lumber room. I'll go and see. 
During her absence, Matthew collected his scattered senses for another effort. When Miss Harris returned with the rake and cheerfully inquired, Anything else tonight, Mr. Cuthbert? Matthew took his courage in both hands and replied, Well, now, since you suggest it, I might as well take, that is, look at, buy some, some hayseed. Oh, poor Matthew. Miss Harris had heard Matthew Cuthbert called odd. She now concluded that he was entirely crazy. We only keep hayseed in the spring, she explained loftily. We've none on hand just now. Oh, certainly, certainly, just as you say, stammered unhappy Matthew, seizing the rake and making for the door. At the threshold he recollected that he had not paid for it, and he turned miserably back. While Miss Harris was counting out his change, he rallied his powers for a final desperate attempt. Well, now, if it isn't too much trouble, I might as well, that is, I'd like to look at, at some sugar. Whiter brown, queried Miss Harris patiently. Well, oh, well, now, brown, said Matthew feebly. There's a barrel of it over there, said Miss Harris, shaking her bangles at it. It is the only kind we have. I'll, I'll take twenty pounds of it, said Matthew, with beads of perspiration standing on his forehead. Matthew had driven halfway home before he was his own man again. It had been a gruesome experience, but it served him right, he thought, for committing the heresy of going to a strange store. When he reached home, he hid the rake in the tool house, but the sugar he carried into Marilla. Brown sugar? exclaimed Marilla. Whatever possessed you to get so much? You know I never use it except for the hired man's porridge or a black fruit cake. Jerry's gone and I've made my cake long ago. It's not good sugar either. It's coarse and dark. William Blair doesn't usually keep sugar like that. I, I thought it might come in handy sometime, said Matthew, making good his escape. <laughs> Poor thing. Mm. When Matthew came to think the matter over, he decided that a woman was required to cope with the situation. Marilla was out of the question. Matthew felt sure she would throw cold water on his project at once. Remained only Miss, Mrs. Lynde, for of no other woman in Avonlea would Matthew have dared ask advice. Remember, he doesn't talk to women. Mm. To Mrs. Lynde, he went accordingly, and that good lady promptly took the matter out of the harassed man's hands. Pick out a dress for you to give to Anne? To be sure I will. I'm going to Carmody tomorrow, and I'll attend to it. Have you something in particular in mind? No? Well, I'll just go by my own judgment then. I believe a nice rich brown would just suit Anne, and William Blair has some new Gloria in that's real pretty. Perhaps you'd like me to make it up for her too, seeing that if Marilla was to make it, Anne would probably get wind of it before the time and spoil the surprise. That's clever. Mm. Well, I'll do it. No, it isn't a mite of trouble. I like sewing. I'll make it to fit my niece and Jenny Gillis, for she and Anne are as two peas as far as figures go. Well, now, I'm much obliged, said Matthew. And, and, I don't know, but I'd like... I think they make sleeves different nowadays to what they used to be. If it wouldn't be asking too much, I'd... I'd like them made in the new way. Puffs? Of course, you needn't worry a speck more about it, Matthew. I'll make it up in the very latest fashion, said Mrs. Lynde. To herself, she added, when Matthew had gone, It'll be a real satisfaction to see that poor child wearing something decent for once. The way Marilla dresses her is positively ridiculous, that's what, and I've ached to tell her so plainly a dozen times. I've held my tongue, though, for I can see Marilla doesn't want advice, and she thinks she knows more about bringing children up than I do, for all she's an old maid. But that's always the way. 
Folks that has brought up children know that there's no hard and fast method in the world that will suit every child. That's that's cool. Mm. Folks that is folks that has brought up children know that there's no hard and fast method in the world that will suit every child. But them as never have think it's all as plain and easy as rule of three. Just set your three terms down so fashion and the sum will work out correct. But flesh and blood don't come under the head of arithmetic, and that's where Marilla Cuthbert makes her mistake. I suppose she's trying to cultivate a spirit of humility in Anne by dressing her as she does, but it's more likely to cultivate envy and discontent. That's a good point. She does. She already envies people there. there um, yeah. But but also, Marilla has been trying to... Um... Like Anne's already always had a bit of that. Um, she's yeah. been maybe she's tried to overcorrect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not that she's envious in a in a horrible way, but she feels something is missing in her life, and she sees it in others, and she wishes she has it. So this it is not envy as much as discontent, a little bit. Yeah. And Matthew ended up going to Mrs. Lynde in the end. Anyway. There we go. Must have remembered it vaguely, but you know. I'm sure the child must feel the difference between her clothes and the other girls. But to think of Matthew taking notice of it. That man is waking up after being asleep for over 60 years. <laughs> it's really nice, actually. Marilla knew all the following fortnight that Matthew had something on his mind. But what it was, she could not guess. Until Christmas Eve, when Mrs. Lynde brought up the new dress, Marilla behaved pretty well on the whole, although it is very likely she distrusted Mrs. Lynde's diplomatic explanation that she had made the dress because Matthew was afraid Anne would find out about it too soon if Marilla made it. So this is what Matthew has been looking so mysterious <laughs> over and grinning about to himself for two weeks, is it? She said a little stiffly but tolerantly. I knew he was up to some foolishness. Well, I must say, I don't think Anne needed any more dresses. I made her three good, warm, serviceable ones this fall, and anything more is sheer extravagance. There's enough material in those sleeves alone to make a waist. I declare there is. You'll just pamper Anne's vanity, Matthew, and she's as vain as a peacock now. Well, I hope she'll be satisfied at last, for I know she's been hankering after those silly sleeves ever since they came in, although she never said a word after the first. The puffs have been getting bigger and more ridiculous right along. They're as big as balloons now. Next year, anybody who wears them will have to go through a door sideways. That's hilarious intolerance of, of fashion changes. Merlin really isn't taking this too well. Mm, no, there, there was a wisdom in Matthew going to Mrs. Lind. Christmas morning broke on a beautiful white world. It had been a very mild December and people had looked forward to a green Christmas. Yeah, that's an interesting sentence. People had been looking forward to a green Christmas. Mm. Well, I guess when you live in Canada and <laughs> yeah. it's the winter time. <laughs> yeah, I can I can understand that. It's, it's a long, long now, now personally I would I would kill for <laughs> for some white at the moment. <laughs> oh, yeah, right now we'd read <laughs> yes, please. Um, <clears throat> but just enough snow fell softly in the night to transfigure Avonlea. Anne peeped out from her frosted gable windows with delighted eyes. The firs in the haunted woods were all feathery and wonderful. The birches and wild cherry trees were outlined in pearl. The ploughed fields were stretches of snowy dimples, and there was a crisp tang in the air that was glorious. Anne ran downstairs, singing until her voice re-echoed through green gables. Merry Christmas, Marilla! Merry Christmas, Matthew! Isn't it a lovely Christmas? I'm so glad it's white. Any other kind of Christmas doesn't seem real, does it? Note from the Australians, it is our, ah, 
Well, look, you grew up in Germany. I grew up in the U.S. We both had white Christmases as children. Yes. They're beautiful. They're they, wonderful. They are. But, but you know. It, it, and, and it spoiled me because, you know, I've lived here most of my life, but I still think of Christmas time as being winter and and warm with fires. Given and, the amount of carols that have fire crackling and mm-hmm. and uh, the amount of fake snow that's used all over the place, yes, yes, that seems to be a universal trend, even in a country that was seriously on fire during Christmas. But, you know, I, I couldn't hear. Like That was actually a thing I was struggling with with carols this year. Every time they mentioned fire, chestnuts roasting over, over any fire references and carols, or warmth. <laughs> I was just like, mm, this is slightly inappropriate. Anyway. <clears throat> I don't like green Christmases. They're not green. They're just nasty, faded browns and greys. What makes people call them green? Why, why, Matthew? Is that for me? Oh, Matthew. Matthew had sheepishly unfolded the dress from its paper swathings and had held it out with a depreciatory glance at Marilla, who feigned to be contemptuously filling the teapot, but nevertheless watched the scene out of the corner of her eye with a rather interested air. Anne took the dress and looked at it in reverent silence. Oh, how pretty it was! A lovely, soft brown gloria with all of the gloss of silk, a skirt with dainty frills and shirrings, a waist elaborately pin-tucked in the most fashionable way, with a little ruffle of filmy lace at the neck, but the sleeves, they were the crowning glory. Long elbow cuffs and above them two beautiful puffs divided by rows of shirring and bows of brown silk ribbon. That's a Christmas present for you, Anne, said Matthew shyly. Why, why, Anne, don't you like it? Well now, well now. For Anne's eyes had suddenly filled with tears. Aww. Like it? Oh, Matthew. Anne laid the dress over a chair and clasped her hands. Matthew, it's perfectly exquisite. Oh, I can never thank you enough. Look at those sleeves. Oh, it seems to me this must be a happy dream. Well, well, let us have breakfast, interrupted Marilla. I must say, Anne, I don't think you needed the dress, but since Matthew has got it for you, see that you take good care of it. There's a hair ribbon Mrs. Lynde left for you. It's brown to match the dress. Come now, sit in. I don't see how I'm going to eat breakfast, said Anne rapturously. Breakfast seems so commonplace at such an exciting moment. I'd rather feast my eyes on that dress. I'm so glad that puff sleeves are still fashionable. It did seem to me that I'd never get over it if they went out before I'd had a dress in them. I'd never have felt quite satisfied, you see. It was lovely of Mrs. Lynde to give me a ribbon too. I feel that I ought to be a very good girl indeed. It's at times like this that I'm sorry I'm not a model little girl, and I always resolve that I will be in future. But somehow it's hard to carry out your resolutions when irresistible temptations come. Still, I really will make an extra effort after this. When the commonplace breakfast was over, Diana appeared crossing the white log bridge in the hollow, a gay little figure in a crimson ulster. Anne flew down the slope to meet her. Merry Christmas, Diana, and oh, it's a wonderful Christmas. I have something splendid to show you. Matthew has given me the loveliest dress with such sleeves. I couldn't even imagine any nicer. I've got something more for you, said Diana breathlessly. Here, this box. Aunt Josephine sent us out a big box with ever so many things in it, and this is for you. I'd have brought it over last night, but it didn't come until after dark, and I never feel completely comfortable coming through the haunted woods in the dark now. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yes. I like how there's these subtle echoes to the past chapters. Like, narrative has been built. And yet she says she doesn't believe in dryads, but the haunted woods, that's still a problem. <laughs> that's a problem. Mm. Anne opened the box and peeped in. First a card with For the Anne Girl and Merry Christmas written on it, and then a pair of the daintiest little kid slippers with beaded toes and satin bows and glistening buckles. Oh, said Anne, Diana, this is too much. I must be dreaming. I call it providential, said Diana. You won't have to borrow Ruby's slippers now, and that's a blessing for you. They're two sizes too big for you, and it would have been awful to hear a fairy shuffling. (laughs) Josie Pye would be delighted. I love it. Like Josie Pye would have been delighted by your failure, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Mind you, Rob Wright went home with Gertie Pye from the practice night before last. Did you ever hear anything equal to that? All the Avonlea scholars were in a fever of excitement that day, for the hall had to be decorated and a last grand rehearsal held. The concert came off in the evening and was pronounced success. The little hall was crowded. All the performers did excellently well, but Anne was the bright, particular star of the occasion, as even Envy, in the shape of Josie Pye, dared not deny. (laughs) Oh, hasn't it been a brilliant evening, sighed Anne, when it was all over and she and Diana were walking home together under a dark, starry sky. Everything went off very well, said Diana practically. I guess we must have made as much as ten dollars. Mind you, Mr. Allen is going to send an account of it to the Charlottetown papers. Oh, Diana, will we really see our names in print? It makes me thrill to think of it. Your solo was perfectly elegant, Diana. I felt prouder than you did when it was encored. I just said to myself, it is my dear bosom friend who is so honoured. Well, your recitations just brought down the house, Anne. That sad one was simply splendid. Oh, I was so nervous, Diana. When Mr. Allen called out my name, I really cannot tell how I ever got up on that platform. I felt as if a million eyes were looking at me and through me, and for one dreadful moment I was sure I couldn't begin at all. Then I thought of my lovely puffed sleeves, I know, and took courage. I knew that I must live up to those sleeves, Diana. (laughs) Well, thinks it's interesting. She sees it. She's seeing it as a reward, but she's seeing it less as a, oh, I did good, so I get a reward. It's more, look, I've been given a gift, and I should be deserving of that gift that I was given. Yeah, or, or maybe on, on the other side, the little a, a little bit of a melancholic take is, I need to be the person who I think deserves such a present. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's interesting, though. It's also that maybe the fact that, I mean, I'm not going to applaud Marilla's approach to that particular aspect her vanity was an issue at the beginning it wasn't vanity as much as very self-conscious very image conscious right well her whole life she's been told like her red hair is a and she's a skinny. problem and yeah she's skinny no name birth uh, you know, yeah. yeah yeah so it's, it's understandable so it's interesting i'm just gonna go back to that i knew i must live up to those sleeves diana so i started in and my voice seemed to be coming from ever so far away I just felt like a parrot. It's providential that I practiced those recitations so often up in the garret where I'd never have been able to get through. Did I groan all right? <laughs> yes, indeed. You groaned lovely, assured Diana. I saw old Mrs. Sloan wiping away tears when I sat down. It was splendid to think that I had touched on somebody's heart. It's so romantic to take part in a concert, isn't it? Oh, it's been a very memorable occasion indeed. 
Wasn't the boy's dialogue fine, said Diana. Gilbert Blythe was just splendid. And I do think it's awful mean the way you treat Gil. Wait till I tell you. When you ran off the platform after the fairy dialogue, one of your roses fell out of your hair. I saw Gil pick it up and put it in his breast pocket. There now, you're so romantic that I'm sure you ought to be pleased at that. It's nothing to me what that person does, said <laughs> Anne loftily. I simply never waste a thought on him, Diana. Wow. Wow. She, 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 she. Cold-blooded. Yeah. <laughs> little bit. <clears throat> that night, Marilla and Matthew, who had been out to a concert for the first time in 20 years, sat for a while by the kitchen fire after Anne had gone to bed. Well, now, I guess our Anne did as well as any of them, said Matthew proudly. Yes, she did, admitted Marilla. She is a bright child, Matthew, and she looked real nice, too. I've been kind of opposed to this concert scheme, but I suppose there's no real harm in it after all. Anyhow, I was proud of Anne tonight, although I'm not going to tell her so. Well, now, I was proud of her, and I did tell her so before she went upstairs, said Matthew. We must see what we can do for her some of these days, Marilla. I guess she'll need something more than Avonlea school by and by. There's enough time to think of that, said Marilla. She's only thirteen in March, though tonight it struck me she was growing quite big a girl. Mrs. Lynde made that dress a mite too long, and it makes Anne look so tall. She's quick to learn, and I guess the best thing we can do for her will be to send her to Queen's after a spell. But nothing need to be said about that for a year or two yet. Well now, it'll do no harm to be thinking it over off and on, said Matthew. Things like that are all the better for lots of thinking over interesting ending mm. things dun, like dun, well dun. no think no more the fact that we've started with matthew seeing something not sure what it is really thinking about the matter and then coming to a determination that was beneficial in the long run lots of pipe going for the queens yes yes but yes. no I, I love that because we got a good glimpse into matthew's head and we got a good glimpse into miss rachel lynn's head yeah yeah and also in terms of their perceptions of anne versus yeah, I think Marilla has positive perceptions of Anne, but she is anxious about how she's going to interact with the world. Oh, Marilla's taken upon herself, you know, to mold Anne into the person she thinks she needs to be. And that can seem harsh, but, you know, it's all done for the right reasons. Yeah, and I think... but And it's not altogether wrong either. Marilla's been right most of the time. Yeah, it's not that she's wrong. Um, and she does, it's almost like she has to play the straight and narrow mm -hmm. to she, balance she, it out. Yeah, she almost sometimes knows that she casts herself as the villain. Yeah, she's aware of it. But she also loves Anna, and that's very clear. It's mm. just such a strange, um, I, I, I don't, like, I'm wondering, I don't know how much the authoress is trying to applaud Marilla, and I don't think she actually does. I think she just kind of states Marilla's yeah. perspective and approaches and allows others to be the ones who are providing the criticisms. So you've got Matthew and you've got um, Mrs. Lind giving the criticisms, and it's also valid yeah. to, to a great extent. But she's not writing in a way that's judgmental of Marilla. She's more just kind of going, this is her reasoning. This is what is going on. And, and let's be clear, Anne loves Marilla. Yeah. There is this mutual love and respect and also an appreciation that they come from different perspectives and that's okay. 
it is, I think, a commentary on these people who do things that can also be too strict or too harsh or too, and potentially also harmful for a child Yeah. In, in certain circumstances. Luckily, Matthew is there to kind of balance things out. Mm. They come not from ill intent most of the mm. time. We had a couple of run-ins where Marilla was self-righteous to the point where it was harmful. But that that it's not coming from it. It's the same way that Mrs. Lynn she she might mean extremely well. Mm. It does often make me think of that um, famous saying: "The road to hell is paved with good intentions." Yeah. The fact that it, you have to wonder if even people who commit the most horrific acts towards others think they're doing things for the right reasons. And I would argue that some of the worst acts in the world have been because there's this sense of self-justification or self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is dangerous. And I don't think Marilla quite hits self-righteousness. No, no. But well, she could. She could easily tip over into that and she has in the little moments. Yeah, she, she's a very proud woman. She's very proud, very pragmatic, pragmatic, very... I think that's what it is. She's so almost utilitarian is the word I want to go with, but not, but it is. It, she's she's that border where if she tipped over a little further, it could be self-righteous. Hmm. And Mrs. Rachel Lind has also self-righteousness as yes. well. They all do um, because, you know, they know best. Well, yeah, I, I find it funny how Mrs. Lind, her criticism of Marilla was, yeah, these people who don't raise children, they think they know the right way, but then they have to learn that it's, there, there, there's no set formula. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. But you know, Mrs. Lind, you're, you're, doing you're, you're pretty much. Uh, I know best. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's interesting how everyone knows best, but at the same time, I mean, Anne luckily is in an environment where people actually care enough about her and lovingly want to create a space for her to grow and flourish. And this concert, for example, allowed them to see a little bit more about Anne and really see her talents in the context of her local community. Matthew's voice is really important in this book. Well, you know what I love most about his discussion with Merla at the end? I think Matthew purposely underplayed his, how proud he was because he said, I think Anne was as good as any of them. Where inside he was like, she was the best one up there, yeah. and I'm so proud. <laughs> no, and she did. She did. He did that in order to get Marilla to actually say mm. it out loud to herself, mm. even though she doesn't want to tell it to Anne because otherwise she'll get a big That being said, then the times that she does recognize it and acknowledge it will be all the more profound. I'm not saying um, was it. I'm not saying that you can spoil a child by, by recognizing their abilities and talents all the time. I don't actually believe that. I think that recognizing abilities and talents is great and you should do it, but in a context so that you're not just making them feel, you know, um, oh, I'm the best, I'm the greatest, I'm, you know, it's all about So they're not me. vain. Yeah. And I, I know that Marilla is extremely conscious about the vanity just because of the kind of things that Anna had said right at the beginning. Yeah. And she is. She is prone or at risk of developing vanity. I don't think she is actually vain. I think mm. she's at risk of it. And she has said it before where she is able, like she makes judgmental statements about the local parish for, for Pete's sake, or the local priests and judges them and whatever. Mm. And encouraging her to be a little bit less, um, uh, you put it, it's okay to be critical, but at the same time, recognizing that there are different points of view. And that you're not and, always right. 
and you don't put yourself above anyone else. That that's what it is. It's it's um, actually I was reading an article on intellectual humility, which might be relevant next time. Yes, I think it will. Um, so, intellectual humility is a concept there that if everyone gets a chance, have a look at it. It's um, that idea that. I might know what I know, but I also know that I don't know as much as I... There'll be always something more to find out. There's more that we can find out. There's more that... And other people will know more about something. I'm very... Um, it's maybe the opposite of uh, intellectual humility uh, through my own experience. And I because I went through it, I definitely see it in others. Um, I guess I would call it intellectual um, insecurity. The, yeah. the, the idea of... It's a difference, um, yeah. I I want to prove how smart I am to the rest of the world to validate how bad I feel about myself. That's that, and I think intellectual insecurity contributes to that, but also a lack of humility. If you're humble about inte- intellectual humility, we're not talking complete self-effacement. We're not talking about... It's just putting the ego on the backbench and recognizing there are so many perspectives and so many understandings that we are yet... To, we can't know everything. Simple as that. No one can know everything, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Accepting that, yeah. no one can be good at absolutely everything. Everyone can have talents, and there can be people who are really talented at a whole bunch of things. That makes them, you know, our more modern Renaissance people. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. But the best way to to keep learning and the keep to keep uh, going forward, and also being a space where you encourage others to do so is recognizing and acknowledging and being aware having that kind of that you aren't you can't be good at everything and you aren't good at absolutely everything you can be talented but it doesn't mean that there's always going to be someone else who's really really good at something else and the hardest thing to learn and i really still haven't fully taken on board but the idea that you never should compare yourself to anyone else the the only person you're in competition with is yourself well in in that sense yes i mean in, in the real world, yes, you are competing against, for example, medical grants. You're competing against other people who have similar things. But it's if we switch from competition to collaboration, like I work on being my absolute best, but I can also encourage and be supportive of others developing who, who they their skills and their abilities. And if we do that, you end up with not just one person who's doing the, you know, trying to do their best. You end up with more people trying to do their best. So you actually can be involved in a process where society is affected, not just me and my ability and look at what I can do and I can give. Yeah, I can give by sharing and encouraging others to also be part of that mm. and to see that in themselves. Be the candle in the darkness. Yeah, well, that others light their fires by. I think there's a quote yes, yes, in yeah, yeah, like, vein. Encourage, be encouraging um, and supportive of each other. And re- the thing is, we can always learn from each other, even if it's someone, I can't remember, but this idea of you can learn by how other people approach the same thing from a different perspective. They might have less training on a certain, say, a carpenter. And a carpenter, and they, they look at their apprentice, and their apprentice approaches something differently. They train them in the ways that they should in terms of the techniques that exist. But then the, the, the apprentice might try something new and that works really well. That's how you get innovation. It doesn't mean that you don't know what you know and you can't do what you can do. 
it just means that we can learn something new from someone who might yes. not have done it that way. Just because we've always done something this way and it's always worked doesn't mean there's not a better way or well, a new way. Yeah, it doesn't have to be better, worse, or good, bad. Like I think these blanket statements that we are prone to making, these extreme statements, actually are a disservice to innovation and growth. Yeah, because it's closing off parts of your mind. Yeah. And you have to try and keep... well. I think having an open heart is more important than an open mind, but you do want both. Yeah, well, if, if you have an open mind, but you don't have an open heart, it doesn't really help, and vice versa. Having an open mind, but not having an open heart that's willing to learn and explore and be... Well, will, the thing about willing open heart, you know, the, the willingness to be vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. To take chances. To yeah, take the reason I can't... To put yourself out there. The intellectual humility thing, there's an actual thing happening at the Max Planck Institute in, in Germany where a professor of psychology, I think, I can't remember now, but they've opened a project, they're doing an experiment for the next short time. They're getting scientists to come, and scientists, social scientists, doctors, whatever, come and say, these are views that I formerly had, and I made statements about, and I'd like to say that I retract that opinion yeah. now because further information has come to light and I've learned more about it. Or I made a mistake in the calculations or whatever. And, and that we don't punish people for making a mistake when they apologize for it and when they acknowledge it or they learn from it. Because we're culturally conditioned to not apologize. It, there's, it's worse to admit that you're wrong than to actually be wrong. Yeah, it's seen, we talked about this before, it's seen as weakness, and that is just so pants-on-head stupid. It, it makes no sense, because if you ad, you're happy to admit that you're wrong and to grow and work and learn from it, that means that, you know, again, growth. Growth is not a bad thing. Growth is good. Yeah, any time um, someone doesn't apologize for something that other people know they should apologize for i think that person loses a lot of trust from credibility other just people goes down your credibility for not taking ownership over your mistakes and responsibility yeah. yeah it's worse if you can't take responsibility you have more growing to do well everyone has more growing to do we all have more growing to do but i mean that's an important one that, that's, that, a, that's one. a big one it's a barrier especially if you're a public figure or in a leadership position yep Yep, yep, absolutely. I mean, that particularly, but every one of us. I think the slow, slowly infusing all our cultures, work cultures, home cultures, whatever, with recognizing when we've made a mistake and growing from it or when we review our understanding of the world. These things are not, like, that's going to be the future. Well, you know, that's one thing I love about these podcasts is it's not just um, the ability to enjoy a book and spend time with a friend, of course, but we tend to just sidetrack into what I find are fulfilling and interesting discussions. Oh, absolutely. Like, it's just, it's nice to reflect and on concepts that are, I, I mean, it is philosophy, but it's also just what are the qualities that we could potentially encourage each other to have and what do these books encourage, well, reflect on? Well, because the other thing, like, you know, it doesn't feel like it, but we're both still pretty young in the relative of the yeah. the, the um the average uh lifespan Lucky of a human being in these days yeah 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 we're about we're still before the halfway mark in terms yeah, we're, of we're approaching 40 yeah and you know as we have these discussions i think you know we're trying to work at the answers because 
in in our brief life we've we've been pondering these things and trying to work out answers and we're probably far from any answers if there are answers to these mm. questions so you know it, again we talk about growth it is a constant prodding discussing thinking trying to find something that makes sense and you know as i age i i'm thinking more and more about how oh, okay this no no i'll, I'll, I'll say it because it i i know there's going to be some pushback on it but i tend to as I age, I tend to, you know, I find myself maybe to my detriment, but I find myself embracing the subjective more and uh, uh, not the, the, the objective not mattering. The idea that there are facts at the basis of everything and they dictate the way the universe works and how we should approach life. I find that less and less important, even if it is true. Like mm. I find my, I know as a scientist you probably bristle largely no. at that idea no so you were saying uh, well just just as i say as a scientist you probably bristle at that notion because okay maybe this is just the illusion of online discourse but it seems you know a lot of argument just seems to come from the idea that uh we're all starting from a different baseline of facts okay so no, I, I don't know if I bristle at it as much as there are facts, there are things that are measured and, and quantified, but it doesn't, okay, this is going to get, it's not that it's, mm, we are, those facts and those measurements are only as accurate as the instrumentation by which they are measured at the time. And maybe that's it, because as I age, I'm getting more and more, maybe okay with the idea with just how fallible humans are and how we don't really know and, a, a, anything almost yeah. well no that's the thing it's like the, and a true sorry, a, an understanding i don't believe that there's a true scientist or a non-true scientist but more a case of one of the underpinning philosophies that can be applied in science and in anything is that there is we constantly learn and we constantly find out more. And the more we find out, the more our previous understandings and previous con concepts are either confirmed or right. elaborated on. So nothing we discuss now um, in, in most fields is without foundation in previous understandings and previous and confirming previous observations or refining previous understandings. So it's every, you know, the expression, you're standing on the shoulder of giants. Yes. That's what... If I have seen further, it's is because I, I stood on the shoulder of giants, yeah. I, I love that quote. It's so poetic. Yeah, it, like I, uh, it, gravity existed before Isaac Newton knew about it, before that apple fell on his head. It's always existed. It's just that as a concept, it hadn't been formally and put from, into words. From what I understand, and feel free to correct me, but our understanding of gravity as a force is woefully inadequate even today. Yeah, no, we keep we keep learning and you know what? That's the cool part. That's the thing and it doesn't it's it may not impact on every single individual's existence and in, in their decision. People need the use the facts that they need in life. I I think I think maybe the thing that I think might bristle people is the I is the concept that as I age, I find the idea of there being an objective truth not important to me at all. Well, that's the thing, as, as, as you're saying, like, it's important as, as soon as it affects our decision making. I don't think the actual information is the part that's important. I mean, unless it's something that is important for decision making. 
but more the processes by which we arrive at those quote unquote truths. So if we have an understanding of the processes, if we have a grasp on this is what it's like to um, eval evaluate the validity of information. If you develop that as a skill, then when you need the truth about a certain topic, or at least the known truth at this point in time, based on what we what we do know so far, mm. you can distinguish between something that is founded with more certainty and something with less certainty, something that is more reliable information, something is more that is more opinion rather than information, something that is a hypothesis, something that is a more confirmed and, and oh, resounded thing. Maybe kind of like, because I, I used to play um, a lot of poker. Yeah. And the idea is that poker is all about percentages. You know, if you take a bet and put your money on like a 90% uh, sure Thing. It's like, that's a really good bet. You still have a 10% chance that yeah. that's not going to play out. Well, this came up in conversation earlier. Humans are really not good at assessing risks. Yes, we, we've talked about that before. Yeah, humans are not good at assessing risk. And it's simply because even if you say someone 99% certainty, that's the 1% thing. Well, that, that 1%, that's 1% failure. Let's focus on the 1%. It's like, no, no, no. 99% certainty means that it is, in a hundred cases, maybe one will not be that way. And, and you know, the funny thing, at least, again, in terms of poker, because that really taught me uh, to, to conceptualize percentages mm. better over the years I played. Yeah, that 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 one percent chance of failure that happens more times than you think it will. Well, it feels that way again. That's perception and 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 you know the idea of confirmation. Okay, th this is me being bad at assessing risk, like we all. <laughs> I might not get the probabilities right, but um, that's the thing. Like we 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 struggle with that concept because it is it is. I mean, it's a bit esoteric. It's a bit vague in the terms of of what it is. Um, but yeah, so so that's I think that plays part. It's it's obviously a lot more complicated, and we're simplifying a lot. But yeah, if if I was in a different field or I had a lot more power over the lives of others, possibly I would re have to reevaluate the information I have and what how to deal with it. But I guess yeah, just where I am as I as I age, it's 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 more that idea of um, it's really tough. To, it is hard to, to uh, word it. Uh, yeah. vocalize. It's okay to be concerned about information being accurate. And it's okay to, to worry about that having an effect on determinations made that affect all of us. That's fine. Um, I think that when it comes to the day-to-day -day interactions, we might not focus as much on those things. And then the way that we interact becomes more important than what we're interacting about. Well, I think it's also that... that when I talk about like, you know, subjective truth for subjective truth, it's more that, you know, we, you as a person have such a different perspective and view of the world just because of your life and who yeah. you are and all the circumstances. So while we, we have like, there are things in life, like in terms of, yeah, politics and religion and philosophy that we will agree on or disagree on. And as I'm, yeah, as I'm aging, I'm finding, I'm finding more or the idea that there is really no right or wrong in this exchange. It mm. is just really almost just understanding that everyone else has a different view 
and not trying to not trying to persuade i'm less interested now like when i was younger i wanted you know to prove i was right to everybody yeah um but but not not even the idea that i may be wrong so to listen to other people to hear but just that we're all different and there's joy in just embracing that i think perspective there's no nothing wrong with having different perspectives i will say though that the time it becomes wrong is when it oh yes impacts on yeah so that's the part like when it has an impact on others then that need those perspectives need to be explored and actually slowly worked on in terms of it doesn't mean that my for example my approach to it is going to be the way that is solved or addressed and my perspective might not be the solution or the best option either. But it does mean, for example, that when when you're looking at something that could be harmful or is, is dependent on the exploitation or the um, worsening of circumstances for someone else, that that's no longer an opinion. That's no longer a perception. That's no longer, oh. that's actually a harmful ideological application. Yeah, yeah. So it's, 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 and, and, and on that note, yeah. um, the reason I talked about if I had more power, because I think I'm playing with the idea that this position I'm holding might be one of extreme privilege, that I have the privilege to be able to f- approach life this way because, yeah. uh, you know, just me being alive isn't, doesn't anger other people. Yeah. Actually, someone was saying that for, for many people, their existence becomes political. Yes. And, and which is just so screwed up. It is. It is painful. And the only reason thing existing becomes political is because there are ideologies or people in a place or a position of power that, whether they realize this or not, whether consciously or not consciously, because they're perpetuating existing systems that do promote this, they they exist to um, discourage the existence of these folks, and I, I suspect we'll get more into that when we address books that are again dystopian, more in nature. Yes, um, and you know what? All this from puffed sleeves. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, more also the fact that you could have Marilla, Matthew, and Mrs. Lind having different perceptions about the same topic. You know, Anne was pretty much a background character in that chapter. She was and she wasn't because it pointed out that she, for her, she looked at this whole scenario from, an again, a completely different angle. So you had three angles, uh, four angles, sorry. You've got uh, Matthew because he realizes she's different. That can't be, she mustn't feel comfortable about being different. That's not fair or just looking at it justice. Marilla, concern about character traits being encouraged that are not helpful and that are maybe she feels present in her nature that need to be curbed. Mrs. Lind pointing out or thinking to herself that it's actually serving the opposite. It's actually there and it will uh, causing difference will cause in that sense will cause envy and cause discontent. And that's not healthy either. And then Anne just kind of looking at the whole scenario, I actually like Anne's approach the best, where she's like, um, she raised it once, she stopped talking about it because she realized there was a, mm-hmm. the nope. She accepted it. At the same time, when that reality was changed for her, she appreciated it and wanted to be worthy of it. And that's a, like, there's a beauty in, I mean, you don't want deprivation. She wasn't deprived of something that was absolutely necessary. Mm. It was just something she wanted. 
it was a desire and and i mean social standing wise maybe it made a difference but she was shining regardless of whether she had that particular feature or not and that was the thing that was key mm. and i wonder if marilla recognized the fact that she already was shining as a star mm. regardless of the material frippery in her opinion frippery. Yeah. yeah so i don't know it's 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 actually much more complex and the truth in the story of the puff sleeves <laughs> in the matter of the puff sleeves truth is definitely very relative to the perspective well you know you know i thought i was just going off on a tangent but it really does connect it does connect it does it does because the way we perceive any reality the way we perceive any action is going to be varied and you know what i reckon i reckon that that all those truths are can be true like those ones can absolutely reconcile with each other relative to perception mm. um but yes so i think it's probably about time to wrap up sorry for going on such a tangent there yeah. working through some stuff yes yes try, well try, trying to vocalize my feelings that have just been kicking around in my head for a long time and that can always be difficult it's challenging it's 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 very hard to put to words patterns we observe i think as you get older you can i don't think the passion fades i think passion stays i think it's more that you realize that you're not the only one with passion mm. it's not only about well, I'm not saying that young people can't think outside themselves. They totally can. That's not it. But I guess you realize that being extremely vocal about your passion doesn't mean that someone else isn't going to be vocal about their passion, even if you might disagree as to whether it's the truth or not. Yeah. So it doesn't stop me being vocal. It's not going to stop someone else from being vocal with a completely different viewpoint. Like, ideally, everyone can be passionate and happy, and we can all support each other. Yeah, unless, of course, they're... No, passionate. no, happy. Happy. Yeah, happiness. Complicated story, that one. But yes, on that note... Um... Yeah, okay, so the music at the top of the podcast was Avonlea by Haggard Hardy. At the end of the podcast was I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. You can find me at Rue McMoo, that's R-O-O-M-C-M-O-O. We have a Twitter and a Facebook page. They're both at SMBSLT Podcast. And if you'd like to email us, it's smbsltpodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave us some feedback uh, wherever you feel uh, comfortable doing so. Uh, we've been enjoying making these, but we'd love to hear uh, what, how you've been enjoying listening to them. We know you're out there. We see the stats. We just don't hear much. So please let us know how things go, even if we are occasionally off into the weeds as we do. But to the, to the. So um, I think we should end with you letting us know what... Next chapter. Next chapter. Very portentous. The Story Club is formed. Oh, no. <laughs> Yay, can't wait. Okay, well, till next episode, happy reading, everybody. Adios. Adios.